What do you understand by the word suffer? And let me just draw your attention to the box that in the inset there that we're making our way through the Apostles' Creed. Remember, that is the form of sound words that has been given us, that has been given the church. And we've come now to this section in our study of Jesus, that he suffered. He suffered. Just that word, suffered. Uh, the next Lord's Day, we'll consider that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the one after that, we'll consider that he was crucified. But at any rate, this evening, suffered. Well, the answer given us then is that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So far, the Catechism. My friends, the Catechism has given us this uh, understanding of the sufferings of Christ, that the whole life of Christ was suffering. We tend to restrict the sufferings of Christ just to his death on the cross. And notice the Catechism says that especially he suffered at the end. But the Catechism wants us to understand that the whole life of Christ on earth was one of suffering. And that when we think of the atoning work of Jesus, we should not simply think of his death, But we should think of all of his life. And remember, last week, we considered his conception and his birth. And the Catechism explained to us that even his conception and birth covers my sin in the sight of God. Do you remember that? And we tried to explain that from Romans chapter 8. That even the birth of Christ was atonement. He was suffering. And he made atonement for his people, even in his conception and his birth which was such a lowly birth. And that, of course, came at a wonderful time because that was right uh, at the time of Christmas. That was Christmas Day, actually. Well, now we come, then, to to consider uh, what do you understand by the words he suffered. And now our, our instructor here in the catechism is going to step back a bit and he's going to explain to us what is the meaning of these sufferings. Yes, Jesus suffered. There's no question about that. But many of us suffer in life. Many of us suffer very, very, very sharply in life. In fact, we, we sometimes see people who we think, why? They, they, they go from one suffering, one trial to another. Our heart breaks for them. But the sufferings of Jesus is something theological, right? It has a, it has a wider meaning. It has a biblical and a theological meaning. And so that's what the Catechism is going to explain for us. And the first fact, then, that we're going to consider and that the Catechism is going to lay before us is God's wrath. And that is the first point this evening, God's wrath. You'll notice that it says that Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against sin. So that is the first fact, that there is wrath, that God has anger. Now, when we think about God's wrath, my friends, we must not think of wrath as something that is Uh, intrinsically in God. In fact, if you think with me now a minute, there would be no wrath in God at all, would there? If there were no sin. And that's why theologians have taught us that the right way to think about God's wrath is to think about God's wrath is his holiness in action. 
It is God's revulsion at the fact of sin and the transgression of his law. And his holiness, as it were, goes out, not in approval, right? But in wrath and in anger. And so so God's wrath is just an expression of his holiness. And because God is holy, he hates sin. Notice that the Bible says that God is love. But nowhere does the Bible say that God is wrath, right? God's wrath is something that is drawn out of him by the fact and the presence of sin in the world. So this is a reality that lies then at the very basis of our understanding of the sufferings of Christ. This we must understand in the first place, that there is wrath in God against the sin of mankind. You'll notice that in Ephesians, or you'll remember, in Ephesians 2, verse 3, God talks about children of wrath, right? He calls uh, that at one time you were children of wrath, says the apostle, children who are under the wrath and the judgment of God. And that is the first place, then, where our catechism brings us. Well, let's move to the second point, then, right? Because we are taught by... I'm sorry, before I move, I want to bring this into the text. So before I leave point one, God's wrath, where do we see that in our text? Well, our text this evening is 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. It's also at the top of your outline there. And where do you see wrath in that text? Well, it says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Did you see anything about God's wrath in those verses? You have to look closely, right? It's not immediately apparent. But the idea of God's wrath is bound up in that word, propitiation. Do you see that there? Propitiation. Now that's, again, a, a deeply theological word. Uh, it's, a, it's a theological word that many uh, more contemporary translations of the Bible have simplified. But it's a good word. It's a word that we should know. And propitiation is similar to our English word appease. When somebody is very angry and somebody does something to calm them, to take away their anger, right? they are said to be appeased or propitiated. Now, we don't use that word in our common talk. But still, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful theological word because it teaches us the reality, the fact of God's wrath against the sin of man. That God is angry with sin. Well, let's move then to, to uh, point number two. Christ sustained, says our catechism. Christ sustained in body and soul during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, the wrath of God. So now this teaches us something about the sufferings of Jesus, doesn't it? That Jesus didn't just, it's just uh, he suffered, and in the, um, again, many of us suffer in life, don't we? But Jesus' suffering has a meaning, because he's, his sufferings were a sustaining the wrath of God. Think with me a minute, uh, dear friends, about the different kinds of suffering that take place in life, right? If you were in an accident on the way home from church, and you broke your leg, right? Or if you had some reverse in your health, right? We, we think about that kind of hardship, that kind of a disaster, right, that comes in our life. 
right? As a form of suffering. Something bad happens to us. We get sick or we have an accident. We suffer. That's one kind of suffering. That's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about here as it pertains to Jesus. Right? That he came in some kind of calamity. There's another kind of suffering, right? And it's the suffering that we put upon our children, right? May I call this discipline, right? This is the kind of suffering that we give to our children to shape and to mold their character. When they do something that is unacceptable, right, we, we give them a measure of pain, don't we, in response to that inappropriate behavior to teach them that such behavior is not acceptable. It's discipline. It's a kind of suffering that we inflict upon our children, hopefully in a controlled and loving way, to better them, to shape their character in a better way. That's not the kind of punishment, sorry, that's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about now when we talk about Jesus. Right? God the Father was not disciplining his son to morally improve him. Right? That's not the kind of suffering that Jesus endured. On the contrary, my friends, the suffering that Jesus endured was, and maybe we can just go right back to what the text gave us, that word propitiation. Or maybe a word that we understand in our own terms is satisfaction. You see, my friends, this kind of suffering is to satisfy the demands of justice. Right? I don't think that when you discipline your children, you sit down and say, well, you know, you broke this law, and now justice demands that I mete out this punishment. That's not the goal, right? We don't discipline our children to satisfy the terms of some justice, right? Uh, there might be a measure of that involved in it, I, I understand, but primarily it's to, it's to better them as people, isn't it? But the sufferings of Jesus were a satisfaction to divine justice. And that's why the Catechism teaches us that he sustained in body and soul the wrath of God. Jesus' suffering was an atonement, It was a satisfaction of justice because the law of God had been broken. Now, where do we see that in our text then? Well, again, I go back to that word, propitiation. Because it says that he himself, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's why Jesus had to be a propitiation. That's why the wrath of God needed to be taken away or removed. Now you say, well, why, did, why couldn't we have done that ourselves? Why couldn't we have told God that we were sorry for our sin and then lived a very good life? You know, dot every I, cross every T. Well, there's a problem there, isn't there? Because we're not capable of that kind of perfection that God demands. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's another issue, right? But here in terms of suffering, we're talking about what Jesus did to sustain the wrath of God. And the text teaches us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Let me just also point out to you that the text teaches us that Jesus Christ, the righteous, right before it says he himself is the propitiation, it says Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, that teaches us another important point, my friends. That is that Jesus was not atoning for his own sin. He had no guilt himself that he had to make atonement for. He was making atonement. He was propitiating God for the sins of others. Well, 
Let's continue then to that third point there, which is the result, which the Catechism teaches us, is that by his suffering, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. And this is the result, right? That as a result of what Christ did, God can now make us, he can now pour out his grace upon us, he can give us righteousness, and he can give us eternal life. You can see the Catechism says he delivered us from eternal condemnation, and he gained for us grace, righteousness, and eternal life. And that too is clearly implied in our text, isn't it? Because in our text, John is writing to his peop- to, uh, to the people, probably uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians together, and he gives us very explicitly his purpose, doesn't he? He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's his goal in writing this. Well, my friends, I think that as soon as, as John says that, I'm writing this so that you may not sin, immediately we're flooded with a sense of all the sins that we commit day after day. And the guilt of those sins comes in upon us. We feel it. I'm writing this so that you may not sin. And immediately we think, I'm a sinner. I sinned even today. And right away John moves in. And if anyone sins, it's, 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 he reads our mind on that, isn't he? John too was a sinner. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Very clearly, John is teaching that yes, we have sin. Yes, we feel the guilt of our sin. And we know the wrath of God that we deserve because of those sins. But Jesus is the propitiation. He takes the wrath of God away through his suffering. And he makes it now so that God can bestow upon us righteousness, eternal life, and grace. That's the result of this suffering of Jesus I come then to the fourth point, the recipients of this grace. Now here, my friends, the Catechism says that Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Now I think that we probably read something like that and and prick up our ears and think, is that really right? Is that what we believe? How are we to understand that, the sin of the whole human race? Well, you know, my friends, that as Reformed believers... We hold to what is often called the five points of Calvinism, right? Given us in the T, the U, the L, the I, and the P, right? Tulip. Tulip. And the L, right in the middle of that, is limited atonement. And so immediately we wonder what our instructor can mean when he says that Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Well, let me try to help us understand that. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's try to put this in the context of the Old Testament. Remember that when an Old Testament person sinned, whether it was a man or a woman, he had to take the requisite sacrifice, whatever was prescribed by the law, to the temple. And you'll remember how that went. That when that man came, and when the priest took that animal into the temple courts, then the man was instructed to lean his hand upon the head of that animal. Right? And a substitution took place there. The innocent animal was cut down and killed. And the guilty person was justified and went away free. And God said, atonement has been made for the sin of that man. So when we ask ourselves, 
What was that sacrifice? Who was it for? Well, it was for that man who sinned. It wouldn't count for the other man who sinned. He would have to bring his own sacrifice. Right? That's one of the deficiencies of the old covenant. One of the deficiencies of the old covenant religion, right? Was that the sacrifice had to be repeated over and over again. And even if the same man sinned again, right? Again, another sacrifice he'd have to bring. So now when we come to the sacrifice of Jesus, which again, in the New Testament, we're always to understand the, the sufferings of Jesus in that context, right? Of those sacrifices making atonement for sin, right? Which they, they, those sacrifices were an Old Testament propitiation for sin. How do we understand that of Jesus now? Because he had no sin of his own that he was making atonement for. Well, my friends, Jesus made atonement for the sins of others. Well, yes, but then for who? Well, the Catechism has said, right, that it was for the sins of the whole human race. Why does it say that? Well, there's a very simple reason why it says that, uh, dear friends. And that is because Scripture says that. Right? And that's the Scripture that we have from 1 John 2, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. Now, how are we to understand that? How are we to understand that? You know, there's, there's many in, in churches today that would say, what's there to understand? That's, that's simple. Jesus died for everybody. That's, there's nothing more to be said. He died for everybody. But there is something more to be said about that, isn't there? Because we all believe, as Christian people, that not everyone is finally saved, right? We all, we all believe that. No matter, I mean, if, if I went out to the churches of Kalamazoo, at least the, the evangelical churches, the Bible churches and so on, right? Those people, we, they, they, we all confess together that not every person is saved. So if you're going to say that Christ died for everybody, then it's, it's a good question, isn't it, to ask, what does that mean? The question is not impertinent. It is an appropriate question. And we need to dig deeper into this, don't we? Now, the Arminian understanding, uh, and you can go back into Dutch history too, and, and they were known as the Remonstrants. Perhaps that's a word you're familiar with. But the Arminian understanding, my friends, is this. That when the Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, it means... That God, through the death of Jesus Christ, raised up every single person on earth to a certain level where they were savable. Where now it was possible for God to save those people. And actually, they, they, they would word that slightly differently. They wouldn't say now it's possible for God to save those people. They would say now it's possible for those people to believe and to, be, and to now take hold of the sacrifice of Christ for themselves and to be saved. But the important point is, my friends, that the Arminian understanding is that God did no more for his people in the death of Christ than he did for all people. That what God did through the death of Jesus, he did for every single person, and there's no difference, no distinction made between God's people, God's elect people, and the non-elect people. The only thing that makes the difference is the faith of believers. 
that by believing, you might say, they, they seal the deal. Look at that picture there. And children especially, I would hope that you... Look at that picture on there. I put a picture on the outline of that bridge, right? You'll recognize that as the Mackinac Bridge. Now there's about 4.9 miles, I'm told, that that bridge has to span. Well, now suppose that we think about that bridge, that the architect designed that bridge to go all the way across the Straits of Mackinac. But that last little bit, he stopped. So that bridge goes all the way this far, but not all the way to the shore. It stops right there. And if you want to cross the Straits of Mackinac, you may use the Mackinac Bridge, but that last little distance, you have to jump yourself. You have to get yourself across it. In a sense, this is how we can understand the Arminian understanding of the death of Christ. It renders every person savable, but it doesn't actually save anyone. It brings you up to that point where now you can take that last step yourself and you'll be saved. And of course they would say that last step then is faith, to take hold of the sacrifice of Christ and to be saved. Well, clearly, my friends, the Reformed disagree with that. Now, I may ask you to take your blue hymnal. I'd like you to read this in the wonderful language that is given us in the Canons of Dort. If you take the blue hymnal and turn with me to page... 99, page 99 in the blue hymnal, brings us to the second head of doctrine of the canons of Dort. And I would like to read several of these articles with you because the language given us here is so... Well, I can't say it's perfect, can I? But it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's so helpful to understand these things in the language given us by our fathers at the Synod of Dort. And so if you're at page 99 in the blue hymnal, that's in the back, of the, the back of the blue hymnal, by the way, you'll see their second head of doctrine, the death, of, the death of Christ and the redemption of men thereby. Now, here we have in Article 1. Article 1, God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. And his justice requires, as he has revealed himself in his word, that our sins committed against his infinite majesty, should be punished not only with temporal but with eternal punishments, both in body and soul, which we cannot escape unless satisfaction be made to the justice of God. Now, that's what we talked about in our first point, isn't it? That there's wrath of God against sin. Satisfaction must be made. In Article 2, since, therefore, we are unable to make that satisfaction in our own persons, or to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God, he has been pleased of his infinite mercy to give his only begotten Son for our surety, who was made sin and became a curse for us and in our stead, that he might make satisfaction to divine justice on our behalf. Well, there's Christ sustaining the wrath of God. Now, Article 3, the death of, God, the, death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Well, my friends, there we are given how we are to understand these words, that Christ sustained, as the Catechism says, in body and soul, the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And the Reformed have taught, all right, the Reformed have taught that the death of Christ in and of itself is sufficient 
to satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of every person who ever lived. That there is no shortage in the death of Christ in the death of Christ itself. Theologians and preachers treasure this fact, don't we? Because when we preach, that's what we preach, don't we? We preach that there is enough in the death of Christ to save the greatest sinner that ever lived. Right? This fact of the infinite sufficiency of the death of Christ is at the basis of all gospel preaching. You can be saved, my friends, and I can be saved because the death of Christ is of unlimited sufficiency. It is sufficient for you. And that's what the Catechism teaches us when it says that Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. It's what the Canons of Dort teach us when it says the death of the Son of God is abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. But now it continues. Again, in in, in the rest of the articles there, in Articles 4 and 5, right, it's dealing with many wonderful issues, which I'll I'll skip over for now. And let's come to Article 8. Article 8. And before I read Article 8, let me just say this. If everything that I've read up until this point about the infinite sufficiency of the death of Christ to save sinners, if that's all that was true, if that's, the, if, that's the, if, if that's all I would say about the death of Christ is that it's infinitely sufficient to save the sins of the whole world, and if I stop there, if I say nothing else, then no one is saved. No one is saved by the death of Christ. And this is the Reformed understanding of the atoning work of Christ, my friends. Is that in the atoning work of Christ itself, there is a gift given to God's elect people alone. And that is the gift of saving faith. By which God enables them to reach out in faith and to take hold of the work of Christ. Let's read that in Article 8 of the Canons of Dort, where we read, For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God, the Father, that the quickening, that is the life-giving, and saving efficacy or power of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect, for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those, and those only, who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. Now, my friends, you see the difference between the Arminian and the Reformed understanding of the death and the sufferings of Christ. Because the Arminian bridge, as it were, goes almost all the way, but not quite. It calls upon you to finish the deal. 
to finish the work, to jump the last little bit yourself. But the Reformed understanding is, yes, that the atonement is infinitely sufficient to save every person who's ever lived, sufficient, but that it is efficient, or that it is applied, my friends, that it is the will of God to give the gift of faith to his elect people. And now they, by the gift of that faith, can take hold of that atonement for themselves. They believe it, and they're saved by it. You see, my friends, this is, this is something I want you to think about, and especially as you discuss these things with brothers and sisters who, again, just insist that God died for everybody, or Jesus died for everybody, and that everybody can be saved. Every Christian, my friends, and, and think hard with me for a moment, every Christian has to place some kind of limitation on the atonement of Jesus. Every Christian has to place some kind of limitation. Either you limit the number of people saved by the atonement, or you have to limit the saving power of the atonement itself. You follow me? If you're going to say that the atonement actually saves people, that Jesus actually saves people by his dying and by his atoning work, then you have to limit them, unless you believe that everybody is saved, right? Unless you want to be a universalist and say that everybody is finally saved. And some people have gone down that road. But as people who hold to the Bible that not everyone is saved, we must believe that God takes the saving power of the atonement and he applies it to his people alone. The only other option, my friend, is to go down the Arminian road and to say that the saving power of the atonement itself is limited and that it doesn't actually save people, that it brings them to a point where they can now save themselves. Think about this. If, in, if the death of Christ does no more for God's people, for God's chosen people, than it does for everyone, then, who, then what does it mean to be saved by the death of Christ? Let me give you some scriptures here, my friends. Well, let's just look at the text that we have this evening. The text this evening, John is trying to reassure his, his audience, right? That even though they sin, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, right? And that gives us encouragement that we can be saved even in spite of our sins. But my friends, if Jesus' death did that for everybody... Right? If he, if, he, if, he, if he died for every person that ever lived, and he atoned for the sins of all people, then what comfort is it to us that Jesus died? If I look at my own sinful record, if I look at the sins that I commit from day to day, and I hear John saying, listen, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Praise God. He propitiated the wrath of God. He took away the wrath of God against your sins. And that's why you can be saved. But that's no comfort at all if he did that for everybody. And that what really makes the difference in my salvation is when I accept that by faith. Think of some other verses here. If you think of Romans 8... In Romans 8, Paul says, <clears throat> he says, If God is for us, who is against us? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? And then he answers. He says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Here is Paul finding great assurance and great comfort from the fact that Jesus Christ died and therefore he knows and he can assure himself that he will never be condemned. But if the death of Jesus Christ applies as much to all people as it does to the Apostle Paul, then there's no comfort in the death of Christ for Paul. If it applies to everybody, then in a sense it applies to nobody. And what really makes the difference is Paul should be saying, thanks be to God, I believe the gospel, and I took hold of the death of Jesus. But no, Paul doesn't do that. He rejoices in the death of Christ as his assurance that, the, the, that God will not condemn him at last. Now, my friends, I've been at some pains to, to explain this because I know this, this issue of limited atonement is somewhat controversial in Christian churches. And, and, and many people will look at us as Reformed people and say, listen, why don't you just believe what the Bible says? It says God died for the whole world. Just Why do you have to question that and argue about it and... I think the appropriate question at that point, my friends, is not to disagree with them, but to say, well, how do you limit the death of Christ? Either you limit its saving power, or you limit the number of those who are saved by it. And if you look at these scriptures, I don't have time now to go through each of these scriptures, but I gave you them on the outline. John 10, verse 15 is where Jesus talks about laying down his life for the sheep, and Hebrews 7 is on the priesthood of Christ. But you find the authors of scriptures rejoicing in the death of Christ as the assurance that they will never be finally condemned by God. Well then, my friends, we we, we must conclude that the death of Christ has a reference for his people, for his elect people, that it does not have for all people generally. I don't know how you can escape that conclusion. And that's why I, 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 in conversation with with, uh, Armenian people, I, I, I try to bring them to see that fact that either you're a universalist and you believe that the death of Jesus saves everybody and that nobody's going to be in hell on the last day, right? Or you must in some way limit the death of Christ. Well, I, I must hasten on, my friends. This is uh, um, such an interesting discussion and it's so important too. And I want to bring this, I, just, I want to touch on these, these three realities. Let me just touch on these first two. It's all the time I have left. But the first reality, my friends, is that we are under the wrath of God. We already discussed that. We already saw that in point one. But now look at reality number two with me. So if in reality one, you want to write wrath there, right? We are under the wrath of God. But in reality number two, I may proclaim to you as a preacher of the gospel that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And I, and I call upon you, my friends, as every preacher does in the gospel, that you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But think of now about what I'm calling you and what every preacher calls you to do. Am I calling you tonight to make up the difference? Am I calling you to finish the work that Jesus started on your behalf? My friends, isn't there something experientially in our own soul that just rebels against that idea? Isn't there something that by the work of the Spirit, my friends, we just know there's nothing I can add to the atoning work of Jesus? 
I can't take that final step. I don't care if it's just one inch. I can't add anything to the death of Christ. If Christ does not do it all for me, then I am lost. If it's not a finished work of Christ, we love that expression. We treasure that expression, don't we? The finished work of Christ. Because I know that if I have to finish it, then I'm lost forever. But the beauty of the gospel, my friends, is that God presents to us a finished work of Christ. And our faith is not, is not finishing what Jesus started. It's not making up the difference. It's not like our health insurance plans where they pay 80 and we pay 20%. No, it's a finished work that Christ calls upon you to accept in the gospel. A free gift of the grace and of the love of God. And my friends, that is so central to the gospel. And this is something else that I I don't feel just experientially, but even in the doctrinal discussions we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that don't you feel that if faith is something that I have to add to the work of Christ, that's no gospel for me. That's part of the reason why I need the gospel, because I feel myself to be so depraved. I feel like all I can add to the gospel is sin. But my friends, in the gospel we're called to cast ourselves and to cast aside all of our own works, to cast aside whatever merit you might think there is, even in your faith. And we often say that faith is just an empty hand, isn't it? There's nothing in faith, right? It's only that faith connects me to Christ and his finished work. And then I can have hope of being saved. That's also even in our catechism, right? Because even though our catechism says that the, the, the death of Christ is sufficient to, to atone the sins of the whole human race, notice that it goes on to say, this he did, that is, this Jesus did, in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation. And there you see the more narrow, limited application of the atonement to God's people. And I love this quote from David Dixon, a Scottish theologian. He wrote, I have taken, this was, he was on his deathbed when he said this. He says, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and cast them through each other in a heap before the Lord and fled from both and betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him I have sweet peace. What a, what a happy confession of faith. And I know that many of our Arminian brothers would join us in making that confession, even if I believe their theology somewhat contradicts it. But my friends, we flee from our good deeds. We flee from our bad deeds. We leave them with God, and we betake ourselves. We take refuge in Jesus Christ, as the hymn writer said, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Praise God, my friends, for the finished work of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we have labored to understand this a theology and its, its technical uh, distinctions and, and things that are made. But Lord, uh, help us to end here on the finished work of Christ and to take our stand there and to plunge ourselves into the Lord Jesus Christ, to take refuge in him, to cast aside all our good deeds, all our bad deeds, all our sins, all our righteous acts, to abandon them all and to take refuge in the Savior and in his finished work. Lord, we confess we can never finish what Christ started. And we're so thankful, Lord, that the gospel doesn't ask us to do it. But we can just receive as a free gift this finished work 
which counts as a forgiveness of all our sins. Lord, help us to understand the theology of this, even when it's difficult, even when it calls for uh, heavy and deep thinking. But Lord, may we end in the glory of the gospel, which teaches us the beautiful work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we do pray that the nations of this earth, of all tribes and tongues, all ethnicities of people, rich and poor, young and old, that they all would hear the glorious gospel of the finished work of Christ. That on that last great day, Lord, we might stand with that great crowd, that crowd of 144,000, drawn from every nation, from every kind of people, and to shout and to sing praises, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Lord, grant that we might find our place on that day by the glorious work of your Spirit in our life. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal to number 429. Number 429, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers around its head sublime. So the four verses of number 429 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.